What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly. Next week, the Ringer Podcast Network is debuting a new podcast with Vampire Weekend bandmates Chris Thompson and Chris Bayo called The Road Taken. Here's a quick trailer with more info. Hello, friends. Welcome to the trailer for The Road Taken with CT and Bayo. I'm Bayo, aka Chris Bayo. I've watched Chris bring his sunny positivity and shredding bass lines to stages all around the world for the past 13 years in the band Vampire Weekend. And I'm CT. Which is short for Chris Thompson. For the past 13 years, you've been my sneakily dark rhythm section partner. We've embarked on a massive world tour and are excited to experience all the thrills and boredom that entails. To help us process our own experiences along the way, we'll be having conversations with peers, idols, and maybe a rando or two. The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, coming soon on all podcast platforms. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Uh, before we get started, we've got a lot of stuff up on the site. The pieces are coming thick and fast, just like Mike Trout. So I wanted to direct you to some of the written content we've got up on the ringer.com in the last days before the playoffs. Uh, ben has written about an Astros Dodgers World Series rematch. Zach wrote about the end of Joe Madden in Chicago. We have Claire McNear on the end of uh, Bruce Bochy's tenure in San Francisco. Uh, Katie Baker has written about Pete Alonso's record setting rookie year. I've got my awards column out. Uh, and I've also, as of Friday, got a story out based on a trip I took to St. Petersburg, Florida this summer, where I tried to understand Tropicana Field, the Rays, their city, and how all that comes together. Uh, so like I said, it's a lot. You should read it all. Uh, and let's get to the show. All right, friends, it is time for the postseason. And uh, we we're going to preview uh, the first round-ish of the postseason today. Uh, we're going to split that up into, into two parts. Ben Lindbergh's going to be on to talk about the American League later. And here to talk about the National League is Zach Cram. Hello. Happy New Year, Zach. Happy New Year to all the listeners who are fellow members of the tribe. And the holiday ends just in time for some playoff baseball. Yeah, so let's uh, let's get on this. Uh the first playoff game of the year this year is the National League wildcard game that features the uh, two teams with some interesting recent playoff history. I guess not with each other, but just sort of in general. The Milwaukee Brewers are like Mr. Smith going to Washington uh, to face the Nationals and Max Scherzer, who I looked this up. Uh, the Nationals have not only failed to to win a playoff series um dating back to their own or dating back to, to the move from, from Montreal. There have been since 1891, four different major league franchises in Washington, and they have combined for a total of one playoff series win. And was that, was that the series that involved the curly Ogden gambit, which Milwaukee used last year? It was indeed the 1924 world series. So incredible. I mean, it all comes together. It all comes full circle. Uh, so I wrote about this this series. Uh, you can go read that uh, as of Tuesday morning at theringer.com. Uh, Zach, what are your thoughts about it? So I think the first thing that stands out when you look at any one game a baseball series or like a game seven or a game five in the DS is you first look at the pitching matchup. And here, it would certainly seem to favor the Nationals who have Max Scherzer going against the Brewers who have Brandon Woodruff who has been really good this year, but has only pitched uh, a couple times since returning from injury and only two innings in each of those games. 
So you would think Washington has the advantage, and I think they do, but it's a little more complicated than that. One, because Scherzer has not looked himself over the last month since returning from injury himself. And two, because this is one game, you don't need necessarily an ace pitcher to go seven innings, as great as that would be. And Craig Council over the last year, both uh, in the playoffs last year and also in September, making use of expanded rosters, has proved himself rather adept at managing one game at a time. He has Josh Hader to turn to. Uh, and I think there are just a lot of interesting pitching implications from this matchup. This is really the crux of my preview piece, uh, is that this is, and poor Dave Martinez, like he has one game to win and he has Max Scherzer on his roster and circumstances have aligned in such a way that starting Max Scherzer is going to get second guessed, uh, particularly if it goes poorly, because you know, Scherzer, I'm I'm really not sure what to make of, of Scherzer since coming back from those back and shoulder injuries that kept him on the shelf for a little bit because the ERA has not been good. He's allowed a lot of home runs, but like he's always been a little bit homer prone, at least in recent years. And the strikeout and walk numbers per inning are right in line with the rest of the season. The fastball velocity is fine. You know, it it's not like he's throwing two miles an hour slower since coming back. Um so it's it's really hard not that easy to tell if he's compromised. Like if, if this is Max Scherzer at 95% or at 60%, just based on the results dating back the past few weeks. Uh, I think what makes this particularly difficult though, is the fact that the nationals in addition to Scherzer have two other pitchers who would probably be the best starting pitcher on about half of the playoff teams. And Steven Strasburg, uh, who I would have as a runner up, uh, on my hypothetical Cy Young ballot and Patrick Corbin, who's been almost as good. Uh, so the, he could start or rather he could have started either one of those. Martinez has said that we should expect both of those guys to be available out of the bullpen. I don't think it's that big a leap of imagination to imagine both of them pitching at some point, particularly if Scherzer only goes something like five innings. Uh, and that's like it, the, the big thing for the nationals this year, their biggest glaring weakness, the thing that I think makes them, it keeps them from being uh, just as scary as the Dodgers over a short series is the bullpen. is not that good. And over a one game over a, a one game playoff, the, he can use those three pitchers to essentially get right to Sean Doolittle. And uh, I think that papers over a lot of the cracks uh, for for Washington, assuming that Scherzer like how doesn't come up lame in the second inning or you know get shelved for five runs or whatever. Um, because I mean, every there's a lot of pressure on this team, uh, even even considering how well they've done in the second half. Yeah. So to put some numbers uh, on Scherzer since returning from injury, he's pitched seven games and in those seven games has a 4.74 ERA, which is basically double what you would expect from Scherzer. But like you said, he's struck out 54 batters in 38 innings, walked only eight. So there's a little bit of dissonance. I've been thinking about the possibility uh, for a few weeks now, since it became clear that Washington was going to coast into a wildcard spot about the possibility of uh, a wildcard game pitching setup that involves only these three starting pitchers in Doolittle. And I know they made a lot of trades for levers at the bullpen. They've been shuffling guys up and putting players you wouldn't expect in higher leverage situations. But in this one game, as you say, you can just put Steven Strasburg into a seventh inning uh, instead of having to rely on someone like Fernando Rodney. And sure, that might set you up a little bit worse off if you win the game and have to face the Dodgers next round. 
But I think you have to do whatever you can to survive in advance because like this is one of the things that the Red Sox used so effectively in the 2018 playoffs with Nathan Eovaldi, that the Astros used so effectively in the 2017 playoffs when the rest of their bullpen imploded, which is using guys on their throw days, essentially. So Strasburg, in between his normal starts, would be throwing 20 to 30 pitches anyway. Instead of doing those in the bullpen, bring him in for an inning or two in relief. And I think that's the that's the setup that makes the most sense for Martinez and the Nationals in this game. Ideally, I think the scenario would be like six innings from Scherzer, an inning or two from Strasburg, and then an inning from Doolittle without even having to investigate the underbelly of the relief. Yeah, I think like if I had to try to get inside Dave Martinez's head, I imagine that's plan A is that six, two and one. And yeah, you could go farther back. I mean, this is I remember the Bruce Bochy and the Giants doing something like uh, was it like Matt Cain for six innings, Lincecum for two, Madison Bumgarner for one, you know, in, in 20, you know, 2010, 2012, that happened a couple times. Um, you could go really creative and I don't know if like Scherzer and Strasburg are the guys you really want to do that with. Uh, but you could go like, particularly considering how, uh, how much Craig council is going to substitute over the course of this game. I assume you could go Scherzer for three innings. You could go to lefty Corbin for three innings and then go to Strasburg for two or three and then have Doolittle come in to close it out. And if, if necessary, um, I doubt very much that's going to happen because Dave Martinez is sort of a, a tactically conservative manager. He, you know, he doesn't substitute that much. He doesn't pinch hit that much. And that's, you know, that's not a criti- criticism he's had, you know, with as much talent on the, as, as is on that team, you just sort of want to set it up and let it do its job. Um, but that's, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's sort of a, a high risk, high reward way of playing this. Cause I agree with you, like going into the, the Dodgers series, having to start, um, like Anibal Sanchez in game one, and then coming back with those three guys, uh, later on, because you've burned them in the wild card game that beats not, you know, that's beats not making it to face the Dodgers at all. There, the one thing about the like the three 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 plan is that Scherzer isn't the kind of pitcher who would do worse uh, multiple times through through the order. Like this is something that the Yankees have run into in recent postseasons, where CC Sabathia is a pretty good pitcher the first two th- times through the order, but not the third. So you have to finagle your bullpen to make sure you get him out of there after he faces eighteen hitters. Scherzer this season has been just as good the third time through the order as the first time through the order. So if he's cruising, you don't need to worry about putting in Strasburg or Corbin. You can just ride him out like other teams have done in wildcard games past. And that's right. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think it's going to happen. But it's a it's theoretically an option. And I think it's a perfect counterpoint to the Brewers because the Brewers are are an example of I would guess that Brandon Woodruff, even fully healthy, would not be going eight innings in a wildcard game. But especially given his injuries, I would expect like who throws the most innings for the Brewers in this game? Could it be like Josh Hader throwing two and two thirds innings or something when he enters in the middle of an inning with a runner on base and just stays in for two more innings? I think it's possible that he faces the most hitters of anyone on the Brewers in this game, which speaks more to their pitching setup than anything else where they have no aces and the Nationals have three. Right. I, you know, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. You know, I could see, we could see Woodruff stay in for as long as twice through the order, I think, but uh, you know, depending on how he feels. But I dug this up for for my preview. Uh, the Brewers haven't had a start, or they've had one starting pitcher 
uh, throw a pitch in the seventh inning uh, in the past or since I think it's August 16th. And they haven't had a starting pitcher throw uh, throw a pitch in the seventh inning um, in in the postseason since Randy Wolf in 2011. So I think that sort of says all you need to know about the difference between, you know, tactically between what the Nationals have and what the what the Brewers have. And I think for that for that reason, I think that this is going to be a fascinating, ba- you know, single game to watch as possible it is, as it is that, you know, Scherzer sh- shows up, allows two hits over seven innings and and this game's over before it starts. Like, that's definitely a possibility. But if this is, you know, if this is close after five or six innings, it'll be very interesting to see what Council does what ver- versus what Martinez does and who sort of holds the initiative, who's reacting to who in terms of, of of making what moves. And for that reason, I think, you know, Strasburg's the second best pitcher, but I think just in terms of giving us a, a different look, like I would rather go in with Corbin if he's the guy who comes in and relieves uh, Scherzer in the sixth or seventh, just to, you know, make Craig Council uh, flip his flip his lineup around while there's still at least once more through the order to go. Yeah, the platooning is interesting here because uh, Council has been really great at managing a 40-man roster, but this is playoffs now. You have to go down to 25, and obviously the 25 you pick for the wild card game don't have to be the same 25 that you pick for later in the playoffs. So, like teams will typically only take two starting pitchers to the wild card game, which allows you to have more platoon bats, etc. Uh, so there's more opportunity for that than a normal playoff game, but it's still lessened from September. And like if you're the Nationals, for instance, do you, you know, when do you utilize pinch hitters knowing that like Josh Hader is coming in at the end of the game, even someone like Drew Pomerantz, who's been excellent since moving to Milwaukee at the trade deadline. Uh, the fact that Milwaukee has these elite left-handed relievers at the end of the game, how does that change your strategy with using someone like Howie Kendrick, who hits lefties well, uh, is going to be where like the, I, I think talking about the pitching strategies, it's sort of the macro level X's and O's, but even uh, this next level, I think is it's part of the fun of, of a single game playoff, which isn't necessarily fair. The better team certainly doesn't always advance, but it's part of the entertainment. And, you know, it on one level, like I think the, the play here is to just pick your starter for Martinez, you know, from the nationals perspective, the play is to pick your starter, whether it's Scherzer or Strasburg and let him throw until he's done. And, you know, I, right. if you if you have these three pitchers and try to get cute and you lose, then, yeah, you know, I mean, that it's you're going to rightfully get get ripped in the papers the next day. Um, so right now, Yelich is is obviously not going to take part. Uh, I met Ryan Braun and Lorenzo Cain are both day to day. They're up in the air. I imagine both of them will play. But if one or both are are either out of the lineup or compromised, this Brewers lineup gets really thin real quick. And so the way it's constructed, like I would look for ways to get Eric Thames out of the game because uh, Craig Council has used him consistently against right-handers who he hits very well and not at all against left-handers who he doesn't hit very well. And the, the, this bench starts to get really thin, really quick in terms of, of guys he can bring off the, you know, in, in terms of like, he can make one move at almost every position, but can he make two? What happens if he, if Orlando Arcia comes up at a big moment, he has to pinch hit for him who goes in at shortstop, uh, after that, because he's been, uh, ridden so hard there, you know, and 
what happens if, if that spot in the lineup comes up again and like Hernan Perez is the guy in the lineup, you know, do you for that forces him to, to, uh, you know, make another decision or get really creative or just leave that weak hitter in. And we saw Dave Roberts almost get burnt, get burned by this a couple times in the NLCS last year. Mm-hmm. And we never really saw it come back to bite him. And I think if you pressed hard enough on this Brewers team, you could force counsel either into a mistake or, uh, or some kind of like no win scenario in terms of substitutions. So you get them like moving hard enough, fast enough early in the game. I just don't think like if Scherzer's on the mound, then you know that's that's not really the game you want to play. I don't think the Nationals are set up exactly right to to play to take advantage of that. Well, it's a fine line where you are allowed to bring twenty five players for this one game, so you kind of want to figure out a way to to maximize that roster use all 25 players but you can't use all 25 players because then what if you need a 26th as you're saying well, and I mean, not just it's it's not even that it's like you've got 25 players but if you use them all like 19 through 25 are probably not going to be very good and they're going to end up playing the high leverage innings and that's what i think that you know the pendulum has not so swung far enough that teams are getting burned by that in the playoffs and i wonder if that's something we'll see Maybe if the Brewers advance and have to go a little lighter on position players in in other uh, other seasons to come, or whether that happens to the Dodgers at some point, or to uh, Oakland or Tampa, but you know, I I think that you can, you know, Council showed he he had the initiative, and so did Dave Roberts last year. Frankly, um, we're still not sure of how to react to managers who substitute heavily in the first half of the game. You know how to how to make that work against a manager who's really aggressive, bringing guys off the bench. Um, and I wonder if somebody's going to figure that out this year. Yeah, I mean that even happened last year to the Brewers almost when they were playing the Dodgers in the NLCS, and they had games that were a, a really long extra inning game, and then the game where they used the Curly Ogden gambit, and they probably I mean, would have where Gio Gonzalez got hurt. Well, that's yeah, they probably would have run out of pitchers had they not been able to call up a new one because Gio mm-hmm. Gonzalez got hurt and add a fresh arm to the roster. I think that's probably more of a concern for later in the playoffs than just the wildcard game. But even as you're saying in the wildcard game on the position player side, that's the issue that runs into platooning. Like uh, if the Yankees, for instance, were in the wildcard game again, like they have eight really good hitters that you're never going to pinch hit for, regardless of like a righty facing a righty. And that's something that is less of a concern for Aaron Boone because he doesn't have to worry about running out of bench players. Okay. So what do you think? Do you think that the Churches is going to be okay? The Nationals are going to finally advance because we do have to talk about a couple other things uh, before we... I, I think the Nationals have the advantage. They, of course, have the cursed playoff history, uh, but I would pick them to win just because they have the pitching advantage from multiple perspectives. But like, if it's tied in the fifth, maybe the Brewers get the advantage with Hader and Pomeranz. Yeah, I think that's about where I sit too. That the longer this stays close, the more I like uh, Milwaukee. But mm-hmm. I mean, Scherzer, as as much as I love my sweet Mississippi son, uh, Brandon Woodruff, this is a, a huge pitching mismatch. Um, so if Washington takes advantage of that, this could end up being over pretty quickly. Um, the most, in, probably the most interesting question in the National League playoffs to me is how scared should the Dodgers be of the Nationals assuming they advance? I think incredibly, because the Dodgers are a really 
good team in a variety of perspectives. They have the best offense in the National League. They have, uh, you know, even with Kenley Jansen's struggles, I think their bullpen is pretty good given all the starting pitchers they can move to the bullpen. But their biggest advantage seems to be their starting pitching, where they have the front three of Bueller, Kershaw, and Ryu in some order. The Nationals can match that pitcher for pitcher. And I think especially it's probably easier to beat the Dodgers in a five-game series than a seven-game series just because you need to beat them one fewer time. And like with Corbin, Scherzer, and Strasburg making four out of five starts in that series, it's not that hard to imagine Washington stealing three. Yeah, I, if anything, I think the the rotation's an advantage for uh, uh, for the Nationals. In assuming they advance, and obviously, you know, this being the Brewers in, in October and this being the Nationals in October, we might not see that happen. Um, but... Assuming they advance, I, I actually there is one team in each of these wildcard uh, setups that has an absolutely terrifying rotation uh, for the favorite that they would face in the next round. But we'll talk about the American League next time. Um, what the, do the, you, la- the last thing I'll say to that yeah. is Washington played the Dodgers in a four game series in L.A. earlier this year, and three of the four games are shutouts. Uh, the Nationals threw one shutout, the Dodgers threw two. Uh, as they split this year's, and I could see a potential NLDS being something like that, where like if you score two runs in a game, you're good. Okay, so let's uh, let's go to the uh, the Cardinals and the Braves, um, the battle for America's heartland, uh, the rematch. Right, this is a rematch of the 1996 NLCS, among various other playoffs. And the, dating the back wild to- card game with the infield flying. Oh Cosma. right. yeah. Man, I blocked that out of my memory. What a weird game that was. Um, the first wild card game, right? That was mm-hmm. that was the first one of the. Was that a doubleheader that year? I don't remember. Anyway, uh, so so we've got the the Cardinals and the Braves, two teams that I think both flew under their radar, flew under the radar in their respective divisions. Uh, there were certainly much more discussed teams, much more you know teams that had had uh, flashier you know success and and bigger names in recent years. The Braves sort of got frog marched out of the playoffs by the the Dodgers in round one last year. Um, where do you see the the needle falling on on this series? You know what should we look for? So in the regular season, the Braves won six more games than St. Louis, but the teams are much more even than that to me. If you look at Pythagorean record, which looks at their runs scored. St. Louis was actually one game better than Atlanta this year. If you look at their base runs record, which looks at like the hits and walks and strikeouts for each team, they had should have had the exact same record this year. So I think they're fairly even. And the most interesting aspect to me, a, a kind of unusual aspect, is it seems to me like a lot of pressures on Atlanta in game one. Playing at home, it almost seems like a must win to me because the Cardinals use Jack Flaherty, their ace, who had an ERA below one in a absolutely torrid second half. He pitched on Sunday to clinch the division, which means he won't be available until game two. That's OK, because the off days mean he'd still be able to pitch a potential game five. But that means if you're Atlanta and you drop game one at home, then all of a sudden you're staring down having to beat Flaherty, who doesn't give up runs anymore uh, to avoid going back to St. Louis down 0-2. And I think that adds a little bit of excitement and extra pressure for the first game, which can sometimes be kind of slow in these series as the teams are feeling uh, their opponents out, but shouldn't be the case this time. I think Flaherty, I mean, that's a, a huge thing for you know going both ways because Flaherty, I think, is the swing player in this series. 
whether he's just sort of whether he's a good pitcher, which he was until July, or whether he is God Almighty, which he was down the stretch this season, I think could be the difference in the series. Because if a Flaherty doesn't win that game too, then uh, and Atlanta goes in a in a uh, St. Louis up um, up to nothing in the series, you know, good luck getting this Braves lineup top to bottom out uh, for for three games, holding them down enough to even get to uh, Flaherty getting game five. So I think there's yeah, as much pressure as you said there's on, there is on the Braves. And I think that's a good read on the situation uh, in game one. You know, particularly if the Braves do win, there's going to be just that much pressure on Flaherty in particular in game two. And I, to Atlanta's credit, I think while they don't have uh, anyone who can match Flaherty pitch for pitch, I think their rotation in general is more solid. Uh, Dallas Keuchel was a great midseason signing. Who would have thought that uh, he would have actually helped the team willing to pay him. Um, he's probably going to start game one, would be my guess. Uh, but even if he doesn't, like that top three of Keichel and Soroka and Mike fulton who I wrote off midseason, and he's been great down the stretch. His last six starts, dating back from late August, he has a one seven three ERA, nearly a strikeout per inning. He's looking like the pitcher he was last year. So they're, they have a steady rotation, and that's valuable, too, uh, in a playoff series where you don't want to see guys knocked out early. I mean, I, I think I like their pitching staff better top to bottom. I don't think either of these teams matches up particularly well in an NLCS with either one of L.A. or Washington. Um, but, and, you know, I apologize for writing off the Brewers. I know just because we're framing it this way, they're going to win. Uh, they're going to win the wild card game um, and maybe even upset the Dodgers. But, you know, I I. Uh, I think Atlanta's just they're just deeper top to bottom. And um, that that's true of their their lineup as well, which I think is certainly deeper. Uh so they have I think for as much as Flaherty gives the Cardinals an individual advantage, I think Atlanta has probably the better roster. I like their bullpen more, I like their lineup depth more. So I think they're the better team, but you know, if Flaherty pitches two games, does that make the difference? And that's, that's where the thing. Yeah, like you said, there's a lot of pressure on him too, but that's like kind of the fun of, as I talked about uh, on a recent episode, like having a playoff ace, even if it doesn't prove to meaningfully change a team's fortunes in the playoffs, which it hasn't historically, just like the prospect of it is really enticing and we get to dream on it and map out these scenarios. Yeah, I mean, that's like... That's the the dream, right? Is he get the guy? You know, Justin Verlander comes out and shoves twice in a uh, in a best of five series, and, and that's the series. You know, so it's uh, it's going to be very. And certainly, the Cardinals are no stranger to pitching performances like that. You think of like Chris Carpenter in twenty eleven, Bob um, Gibson, Bob Gibson, yeah, um, yeah. Certainly, I don't remember Bob Gibson, but uh, <laughs> you know, this this is a franchise that's very familiar with having the one guy, you know, put the team on his back and really pitch him to, uh, you know, pitch him through the playoffs more or less on his own. And, you know, I think we're doing a little bit of a disservice to the rest of the Cardinals roster uh, by acting like this is Flaherty's series to to win or lose. Like, obviously, um, you know, they, they've got, you know, Wong and DeYoung and Paul Goldschmidt and Tommy Edmond who were, you know, were obligated to uh, to mention every time we talk about the, the Cardinals. Um, I just think that the Braves are a little bit better top to bottom, uh, Flaherty notwithstanding. You know what occurs to me is Adam Wainwright could swing the series. Hometown Atlanta oh, guy boy. drafted by the Braves. That's a fun little subplot, too. It's not 
not really hometown Atlanta. He's from the like, state. Like it, it's a guarantee that whatever uh whenever he pitches there will be some sort of broadcast reference so to here's the fact the thing. that he is like, a hometown just, Georgia guy. Just because you're like you're from the state like Georgia's a big state. Like you know, I like I grew up closer to Baltimore than Adam Wainwright did to Atlanta. And obviously like, you know, growing up a Braves fan, it's not the same thing, but like Brunswick is like a different planet. Anyway. So when when they show that on the broadcast, you know, you should I can complain it, about but, this. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the the Nick Swisher is from Cleveland thing. Nick Swisher's not from Cleveland. Um anyway, this geography and state identity and fan identity are all very complicated things. But uh thanks for, you know, we're uh we're just giving a high level preview of the playoffs. So uh I guess we can't really get too into the weeds on that. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-N-G-E-R-M-L-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, so now we're going to talk about the junior circuit, which uh, I feel like is a, a phrase that has fallen out of use over the past few years. And uh, so we're going to talk about that and not the playoffs. And here to do that is Ben Lindbergh. Hi, good to be here. Playoff time. I yeah. live for this. Oh, man. Did did you think that uh, that this day was ever going to come? It's been a long time coming. It's been the usual amount of time coming, but it's always kind of long. Yeah, I guess that's true. I was just talking today about how it's... Uh, like this is the, obviously the most fun part of the season, but the fact that it comes like after we've already you know been doing this for six or seven months, it's like yeah, you know, it feels there like is we an need like a break, like maybe a month off, and then we come back and do the playoffs. <laughs> it probably yeah, wouldn't I, work so well for the players, but it'd be pretty know, good it for might. us media like, members. There's all manner of bumps and bruises that I'm sure you know players would love to have a couple <laughs> weeks off to to go recuperate from, but obviously yeah, well. then we get into. <laughs> You know, we're playing in outdoor stadiums in Minnesota and New York and all sorts of places where you don't want to go into November. So anyway, yeah, well, speaking of which, the teams we're about to talk about have done a whole lot of recuperating lately. They are yeah. back to full strength. Yeah. So let's uh, let's start with the American League wildcard game. We're going to get into a first like a, a wholesale first round preview. And then uh, but let's since this is right in front of us, let's go to go to this now. Um, we have a. Uh, Honestly, two of the underdog teams. Like it feels a little unfair to get the A's and the Rays together uh, in this round. It's a little bit of a, a Spider-Man pointing meme game. <laughs> That's true in terms of how they were built and how they operate and their markets and all of that. Yes, a little bit. I think we wouldn't be calling teams this good underdogs in the typical year, but they just so happen to be in this year where we have four teams that won at least 101 games and the division series that is set right now, of course, is between, uh, you know, 100 win teams and then the Astros are sitting and waiting for the winner of this wildcard game. So the other AL teams are all juggernauts, at least according to their records, but not so sure that at least a couple of them, the Astros are kind of in a class of their own, but the A's and Rays are really good and 
they're probably the two teams that have improved the most relative to where they were a month ago. Just looking at guys they've promoted and guys who've come back from the injured list. Right now, these are sort of scary teams, and I'm kind of disappointed that one of them will only get to see for one game. I feel that particularly acutely for the Rays, not just because like I just published a 6,000 word feature on <laughs> them and their long suffering fans and their weird stadium. But like, not only would I like to see at least one home playoff game for them, but, and this is something they have in common with the nationals, uh, is I want to see that rotation, like yeah. go all the way through in a, uh, a postseason series. Cause I think, you know, as good as Charlie Morton has been, it doesn't really, it does him a little bit of a disservice to like, it doesn't illustrate how, uh, you know, how good this team is just on a one-game basis. They're really built to go five or seven. Yeah, I think that's true. Like, you look at the A's, and they can match up just about as well as anyone in one wildcard game, I think, and we'll talk about how they might do that, I'm sure. But the A's have such a deep pitching staff, and they're almost like a post-rotational team. I mean, they have three guys on their pitching staff who have started exclusively this season. I think it's just Morton and Snell and Glasnow are the only guys who have not pitched in relief and also started if they've started. So it's kind of this team effort and it's openers and it's swingmen and it's piggybacking. I think Brendan and, McKay has also not come out of the bullpen, but it's been right. a minute since I looked that up. Yeah, McKay, anyway. yeah, McKay's, uh, he's, he's had a couple of Oh no, games. he has had a yeah. couple relief periods. Yeah, it's Never almost mind. everyone on that team. Yeah, and, and yeah. you can make the case that it's uh, the best pitching staff in baseball. I mean, certainly the Astros and the Dodgers are right up there. And if you're talking about rotations, you have to throw the Nationals in. But I think the Rays, just in terms of run prevention and peripherals, they're right up there with the best teams in baseball. And it's some lesser known names, but it's really impressive, the stuff that these guys have. And Nick Anderson, for instance, who came over midseason and guys like that, guys they've promoted. Everyone is nasty in that bullpen. And they just mix and max, mix and match roles. And they also have Morton, Snell, and Glasnow, who those guys maybe don't throw the innings that some of the other aces in baseball do, or at least Glasnow and Snell didn't because they were hurt for stretches this year. But those three are almost as good as anyone else's top three. And, you know, they'll go with Morton in this wildcard game. But beyond that, if they get to a division series, they look pretty scary. Whereas, the A's, if you had asked me a month ago, I would have said, who starts the wildcard game for this team and who relieves? <laughs> and, I mean, <laughs> I asked Susan Slusser that question yeah. six days ago, and, yeah. and she said Homer Bailey is in, the, <laughs> is in contention, and I had to stifle laughter, but you know. Yeah, well, I mean, last year, the, the guy who started the wildcard game for them was Liam Hedricks, right? And that didn't go so well, but he's had a, a fantastic season. But like on August 31st, you would have said, okay, Liam Hendricks will pitch in the wildcard game who else i guess mike fires had been pretty good to that point but now you look at sean Manaya, who has been brilliant in five starts back from the injured list and they also called up aj puck of course and jesus lazardo who's looked great and those guys if you you know pair them together and Manaya, and you have hendrix in the back of the bullpen that's pretty tough after that it it gets shakier and Fires has had a, a good year. He's been a little less good lately, but he finished on a, a high note, I suppose. But after that, it's kind of like the 2018 ace story where it's like they pieced together an entire successful season without a starting rotation of, of any kind, really, at least once Manaya got hurt. But this year, Manaya's back, whereas last year they lost Manaya. And I think that could make a big difference in this game. 
Yeah, I think right now, Manai, the way Manai is pitching, he, if you're going to go with a guy who and try to get five or six innings out of him, uh, he seems like the obvious candidate. Yeah. And the, ol- like, the only real argument I can make for starting anybody else is that Puck and Lazardo are two guys who I would want to bring out of the bullpen to give me length. Mm-hmm. And both of them are left-handed as well as Manaya. And I don't know if that maybe I'm just overthinking things. Maybe you just go with your best pitcher in the in the biggest game and you figure things out from there. But I think like if you're if you're going to try to piggyback something, you know, fires can get well, you hope that fires can get you through the order twice and then you can hand it over to Lazardo for a couple innings and then you get into, you know, your sort of Liam Hendricks area. Right. Um, but the yeah, it it will be unpredictable. That is the only the only constant with the A's. Yeah. So with all of those guys, Manaya and Puck and Lazardo, and then Sean Murphy, of course, who's been a very good catcher for them. And they just got Stephen Piscotti back from an ankle injury on the last day of the season. So they're still deciding whether he's too rusty to to play in this wildcard game or not. But They've gotten a bunch of guys who are really important. Like that's a fifth of the playoff roster right there and some really high profile players that they got back just in time or promoted just in time. And it's sort of the same story with the Rays who got Snell back, who got Glasnow back and Yanni Chirinos and Yandy Diaz. Yandy Diaz just came back. So everyone's kind of gotten healthy at the right time for these teams or acclimated to the majors at the right time. And so I I think they're pretty intimidating because, of course, they do other things well, too. They're good defensive teams. The A's obviously have the offensive advantage here, a much better power hitting team. But the Rays probably certainly have the pitching depth. So either one would be dangerous if they advanced past this game. But, you know, the A's have home field advantage in the wildcard game. And I don't know if there's a, a huge edge either way. Yeah, I think it's close. I think you might be underrating the the Tampa Bay offense a little bit because obviously the the A's have those big power hitters, and I think the Murphy mm-hmm. call up helps. I think the fact that Jerks and Profar has like learned how to hit again after the yeah. All Star break has has been a big thing. But like the Rays have, I mean, they are a team that fielded a a, a major league roster this year, so obviously ha- they have nine guys with double digit home <laughs> run totals. But like the right. the thing, like the Big takeaway, like if I had to encapsulate the the Rays in one image this season, it would be that G-Man Choi is their everyday first baseman. Yeah. And like <laughs> he has his own grace to him. Let's just let's just say that. But like not ideal power for a first baseman. Um, certainly not the kind of guy you'd expect to be anchoring the lineup for a 96-win team, but he gets on base. And they just have those guys who can sort of move the, like everybody can move the order along. And, you know, whether if they put Travis Darno uh, in the uh, the lineup at catcher instead of Zanino, then like it's just eight or nine guys who, and there's not an easy out in that order. And I think that that can, if you're, that I think is their biggest strength, or maybe the the area in which they match up best against Oakland. Because if Oakland's trying to put together one good game of pitching, like I think the Rays' offense has fewer weak spots than Oakland's pitching staff, top to bottom. The, uh-huh. Like Oakland is is more likely to run into the one guy who has that critical bad game. Yeah, and another guy I left out of my list of walking wounded who returned just in time, of course, Brendan Lau, 
who was out oh, yeah. for a, you know two three months and just came back and of course he has 17 dingers in 82 games or you know 296 at bats so he's a, a good power source that they just added to that lineup too and, so i mean and even then like they I'm, they obviously missed him but you know uh eric sogard played well in his absence you know joey mm-hmm. wendell and matt duffy haven't been that good this season but they've come up with some big hits down the stretch like you know kevin cash can Zach and I talked about how uh, Craig Council is going to, and I'm, this is going to end up in my my National League wildcard preview that's going to go up on the site tomorrow. But uh, Craig Council is going to have to sort of change the change his team as the National League wildcard game is going on. Mm-hmm. I think Kevin Cash can do that, but he has more depth to do it with. Yeah, that you know maybe that if he chooses to play matchups like the guy who comes in after the starter was pinch hit for. Uh, isn't going to be as big a drop off, and so I think that gives them a big advantage in uh, in this one game scenario. Mm-hmm. And both of these teams were teams that were built largely through trades, just sort of through swindling mm-hmm. other teams, which is kind of fun. I mean, of course, the Chris Archer trade has paid incredible dividends for Tampa Bay, and but you know, Oakland's gotten a, a lot of guys too, just through trades. Our our man Mark Canna, the the Rule Five pick trade. And Tommy Pham, another guy with the Razor. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's just, it's sort of like an old school money ball way of building a team, just kind of acquiring. That's what it's like. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's strange. It's like, you know, those years from, those days from 15, 20 years ago are back again. Like the A's just won 97 games in back to back seasons for the first time since the Moneyball A's in 2001, 2002. It's like, uh, the game has changed dramatically since then, but these teams are still finding ways to outsmart other teams and find free talent or undervalued talent and develop it. And here they are. The only thing I have to to add to that is that would be so much more charming if we weren't in a situation where the Red Sox were considering trading Mookie bets to mm-hmm. to save payroll. Like it's that this kind of thing is is cute when two teams are doing it but like we talked about these you know these teams 96 97 wins there are multiple 100 win teams across the league for uh what is this the third fourth year running yeah um and so like that's part of the polarization of the of the league right now and i think it's just you know it's it's just an idiosyncrasy of of baseball in the late 2010s that i hope is is a cyclical thing but Mm -hmm. uh and it depends yeah, you know, it's, what kind of player you're trading. If, if you're trading Jeff Samarja and you get Marcus Semyon back, that's great. If you're trading Josh Donaldson and, and you don't get anything great back, then that comes back to bite you. Yeah. So anyway, there's like that little sliver of ambivalence uh, with this game between two teams that I like a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's sort of spin this forward and look towards the... You know, we know that uh, the Twins and Yankees are going to play each other, uh, which it feels like happened every year I was in high school. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like I got home from band practice and watched <laughs> Brad Radke lose to Andy Pettit 300 times. <laughs> yep. um, and, you know, I I just like the the Twins are just looking back at their, their postseason history since they moved from Washington. Uh, it seems like they either don't win a game in the postseason or they win at least they win one tops or they win the world series. Uh, and so like this has yeah. happened when I, they don't play the Yankees. Know, they, that's when they win the world series. Well, that's true. Um, so anyway, what do you, what do you make of this, uh, 
um, of this series as the the winner of the wild card game will will go on and face the Astros. Well, it's obviously the matchup of the two teams with the most home runs ever hit in a season. So we're going to see a ton of dingers in the series. I think the Twins pitching staff is probably underrated on a full season basis. But in the second half, I think the bullpen's gotten a bit better, but the rotation's gotten significantly worse. Some of the guys who were really propping it up early in the season tailed off and then they lost Pineda. So they're down a starter. The rotations, I I guess, are kind of the weaknesses for these teams. And the Yankees are better able to compensate for that because, of course, they've built this great bullpen, which should come to the fore this month. We know that Aaron Boone has talked about piggybacking starters and getting creative there. That was before Domingo Herman was suspended and made unavailable. So I think the Yankees rotation has actually been pretty su- successful in September. And partly that's James Paxton. Partly it's Luis Severino getting back just in time. That's another huge case of a player who is absent for most of the season, providing really important reinforcements just in the nick of time. So I could see the Yankees staff going Gosh, I have 60%, 70% relief innings. It's hard to say because I think the league as a whole will probably be above 50% for the first time in October. So this team can really ride its bullpen hard. I think they have an advantage over the Twins there, although the Twins bullpen has gotten better. And beyond that, it'll just be a whole lot of slugging and three-run homers or solo shots, and it'll all come down to dingers. Yeah, it does, like... I remember, so I was at game two of the 2017 World Series, the one that had 35 home runs after the ninth inning. Um, and I think that was when I used the metaphor of it was like watching two giraffes beat each other to death with their necks. <laughs> and like, that's what this is going to be for five games. Mm-hmm. I don't see it really going any other way unless one one of these teams just doesn't show up. Um, and so, I don't know, like... I think the Yankees are pretty clearly better on paper. They had a slightly mm-hmm. better record and and faced slightly better competition. Like they seem fairly similar to the point where I don't know where specifically the Twins have an advantage. Mm-hmm. Like I think they're close enough to win this series all across the board, but I can't like point to one thing and say, "Oh, this is where I see the Twins really making their move." Yeah. And so, you know, that's the like I just look up and down this lineup and like there's so many good so many good hitters, so many dangerous hitters in terms of power, but you know, the Yankees are that's almost, you know, exactly as true of the Yankees. And so, you know, I, I think this this is from that perspective, it's kind of a hard series to to predict, but you know, I think the Yankees are are uh, slightly better, particularly because the twins like they're gonna miss Byron Buxton, mm-hmm. you know, Luis Arias, uh Hurt his hurt his ankle on the last weekend of the season, um, running into Williams Astadio, who is in the middle of everything, <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's going to be you know he's going to be a player that the the Twins miss dearly if he isn't a hundred percent for this series. Yeah. So you know I I guess we don't really have to have a pretense about like rooting interest, but like obviously I would like to see the Twins advance. Um, but yeah, it's I I think it'll be close, but I don't you know like I said I don't see the one specific thing that. Uh, it gives them an edge over the Yankees mm-hmm. apart from they're just similar teams and anything can happen in five games. 
Yeah. I mean, the Twins maybe are the best story of the season on a team level. I guess you could say the Brewers and how they squeaked in at the end there. But on a full season basis, the Twins were really the surprise team of 2019. They won in a lot of interesting ways. They have a lot of really watchable players. I wrote in my piece at The Ringer that's up now about the Astros and Dodgers that Three teams have had above average production, according to baseball prospectuses, wins above replacement player at every single offensive position this year. And it's the Astros, the Dodgers and the Twins. And as you noted, the Twins are getting tested a little bit there, but they're still really strong up and down that lineup. The Yankees, I agree with you that they kind of match up well and are a little bit better at certain things and probably not really worse at much, but it's almost hard to pinpoint what they are and who they are, because that has changed so much throughout the season that I'm guessing that if you look at their playoff roster, less of the regular season playing time will be accounted for on their playoff roster than any other teams, just because guys have been coming and going all year. I'm looking right now at their baseball it's reference almost, page. It's almost <laughs> hard to to say if that's a good or a bad thing. Yeah. Given, well, yeah. I'm, I mean, they've gotten guys back just in time. So it's Severino's back and Stanton's back, et cetera. But a lot of the guys who filled in for the starters, the opening day people were just as good as the opening day people were projected to be because so many of them seemed to play over their heads. And so you can't even necessarily say that it cost them to lose those guys, which sounds <laughs> unbelievable because they had this historic number of injuries and the most guys ever put on the injured list in a single season. And yet the replacements were so effective that I don't know how much it hurt them and it probably hurts them a little bit. But on the other hand, they kind of lucked out a bit in terms of cluster luck and sequencing and clutchness and all that. So that helped make up a bit for whatever they lost in those injuries. And so uh, looking at their page on Baseball Reference right now that lists current injuries, it's still like 12 guys deep. <laughs> but at this point, there aren't that many guys you miss anymore. I mean, I'm sure they'd rather have uh, a healthy Aaron Hicks and Edwin Carnacion should be back in time for this series. So that helps. And there are just some nagging injuries here, like uh, James Paxton's tight glute, which should not prevent him from starting the first game of the series and so on. So it's just day-to-day -day stuff. The Yankees never seem to get through a game without someone having some minor injury. So it's been a really strange season. And if they weren't the Yankees and if people weren't predisposed to despise them, you'd probably say that that was one of the best stories of the season mm -hmm. that they cut through this I year. I think it's one of the best stories of the season anyway. Yeah, I, you I know, think so. Yeah. So, you know, it, it truly, we have never seen anything like that. And mm -hmm. it's been very cool to watch, you know, that's, that's like what you want out of sports is next man up. And yeah. It's just been the story there. It's not like they limped in literally. They, they won a hundred, <laughs> 103 games. I mean, it's like, you don't even notice that it had any effect, even though they had mm -hmm. this unbelievable number of injuries. Yeah. We'll see how all that plays out. Uh, I'm excited to see Mitch Garver in, yes. uh, in the postseason. Yes. Let's see if he, you know, prime Mike Piazza. Get him on the national stage, Mitch Garver. Oh, man. His coming out this party. His coming out party. <laughs> yeah. And like, uh, that's that's going to be fun. I Above all else, I just hope the series goes long just to, you know, have all the people who haven't watched the Twins mm -hmm. or read about the Twins all this season go, who the hell is this guy and why does he have 40 home runs? Yeah. Um, so... All right, uh, we've we're running up against it. Uh, we've talked 
probably more about the Astros than any other team this season. So I don't think we need to go into a whole lot of depth. So let me just ask you this and then we can get out of here. Uh, which team, if you were the Astros, which team would you be rooting for in the wild card game? Hmm. I think probably the A's. Yeah. I, I think the, the A's are a little less dangerous in a five game series than the Rays are. I'd be more inclined to go up against them. Obviously, I think the Astros are the best team in baseball. We've talked about it. They're just about the best at everything or everything important. So I think if you look at the Fangraphs World Series odds right now, they have like one in three shot to win the World Series, which is Which is incredible unusual. considering they have to go through at least one 100-win team. Yeah, their World Series odds right now are as good as the next two teams combined, which seems a little high to me, but maybe not because it's just really an incredible team, just a, a juggernaut. And I have a, a yeah. big stat field piece about that if people want more details. Yeah. the I mean, the Ace played them tight. Uh, Houston yeah. won 11 out of 19, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty close to a, you know, to a coin flip over the course of a whole season. But yeah, I mean, that Tampa's rotation, I think it's a difference maker. Here. Yeah. So I was part of me was hoping that you would disagree <laughs> with me. But as is so often the case, <laughs> we arrive at similar conclusions. Yes, we have not perfected the debate format. I'll, that's something for us to work on over the off season. <laughs> yep. All right. All right, Ben, we will talk again uh, after some of these games are over. Until uh, then, thanks for uh, coming on to help me preview the American League. All right. Talk to you next week. All right. So we've uh, looked ahead at uh, the playoff action for the next few days, uh, but we're going to have a little bit of fun before we sign off for this episode. Uh, and we're going to open up the mailbag. And so I don't exactly have a guest. Uh, I have the looming presence that you hear or feel uh, throughout the show, the voice breathing on the other end of your telephone. Uh, it's uh, Ringer MLB producer Bobby Wagner. And we're going to talk about these uh, talk about these questions. So, Bobby, welcome to the other side of the microphone. There is nothing I love more than a mailbag. It's like crowdsourcing the actual production of the show. You love it. It's, uh, I mean, it, it, I was going to say it's so much easier than, uh, trying to come up with topics on our own, but honestly, Zach does most of the work anyway. So (laughs) don't let Uh, people see behind the curtain. I mean, I think they all suspected that, but (laughs) so let's, let's get into the bag. Who do we, who do we have and what do they want to know? Uh, okay. It's Jordan Brunel. They want to know, can the A's win the World Series? So they're starting us off strong with a with a team that I didn't even put in my playoffs this year, which is tough because I actually am a, a quasi-A's fan. So I uh, didn't put them in the playoffs this year. The, I had the uh, the Angels in their spot, which is... That's uh, bleak. Yeah, it's a long look in the mirror, man. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the answer to that question is obviously yes. I think that they've got the toughest... Well, let me just put it this way. I think they've got the toughest road to the World Series out of any of the the 10 teams. And uh, you know, for that matter, I think the only team whose chances I'm less bullish on uh might be Milwaukee and they're sort of in the same bag where obviously they got a lot of talent on the team, but the competition they're going to have to face is really intense. You know, we, you just heard this uh, on the segment with Ben. If they get past Tampa, which I think is you know certainly possible, probably, you know, probably a coin flip. Um once they get in the next round, I really think their lack of of starting pitching depth is going to uh, come back to the to bite them because you know as good as Manaya is, as much as they can upload or as much as they can overload those middle innings with Puck or Lazardo in multiple inning segments, um, as well as Mike Fires' pitch that you know 
the first three starting pitchers they're going to face after this game, if they win, are Verlander, Cole, and Granky, and they might not get to Game Four. So I think it's a, they've got a long road to to hoe, but you know, I guess there's nothing to do but fall back on the the cliche of anything's possible. I just you know the the top three teams in the American League are so good that uh, it's if they get to the World Series, then they will have earned it. I weirdly feel like they have a better chance against the Astros than the Yankees. And I understand that like their sample size against them is still not a large enough sample size to draw definitive conclusions from this year. But they did play pretty well. You mentioned in the segment with Ben that they've they only lost 11 of 19 or whatever, which I know that's still a losing record. But against the Astros, that feels pretty damn good. Um, yeah, over the course of a five game series, you like you need to flip one, you know, you one need to flip game, one game out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, are we so far past the the era of wild card team gets hot and wins the World Series? That felt like a so. whole genre. Think, now, now there's like so many perfect, like there's so many good teams that are built from top to bottom that that doesn't even feel feasible anymore. Like the the even year bullshit Giants don't feel like they can exist anymore. So there's I I think there's a distinction between even your bullshit giants and wildcard team. I think like if the second best team in the like if the the Yankees from 2017 had won the World Series or uh, or even the Yankees last year, like there's a difference between like the second great team in a division that already has one of the best teams in baseball and a team that's just sort of you know cobbled together to make it into the playoffs and give themselves a puncher's chance. And I think the the league is so stratis or uh, stratified now. Yeah. That a team like the A's, you know, I I think 5 years ago this A's team or it, honestly either of the past two A's teams would have won 90 games instead of 97 because they wouldn't have been able to beat up on the bottom feeders as much as they have. And I think that's a huge distinction when we're talking. I mean, this is one of many ways in which baseball's changed over the past few years, but that's definitely moderated my sort of default standpoint of the playoffs are are completely random, which, come to think of it, might have been an emotional reaction to a way to cope with heavily favored Phillies teams losing to the Giants in 2010 and uh, uh, and the Cardinals in 2011. Sure. And maybe I'm just far enough removed from that. I'm, I'm seeing the light, you know, seeing everything, frankly. But I think, you know, the difference maybe is not that those Giants teams or, or the 2014 Royals uh, wouldn't have made it in, you know, wouldn't have had a chance. I think they would look like uh, this year's uh, Brewers. this year's A's teams in, turn, in terms of record. Right. Okay, so so you're, what you're saying is that the A's aren't actually as good as 97 wins or whatever. I don't think that's that controversial. No, like, I don't think so. You either. look at this this 97 win team versus like 10 years ago when 97 wins would have gotten you to uh, to the best record in baseball. I think you just look at the roster. Obviously, they're good, but you know the win total. I think, and this is not this is not you know I, I don't mean to insult them. Like the name of the game in the regular season is building up your record against bad teams. But I think it's easier to do that now than it used to be. Right. All right, let's 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 move on. Fall football fan asks, will the Nationals go further in the playoffs without Bryce Harper than they did with him? Which is an admittedly low bar, they admit. However, are you prepared for the worst narrative, the worst possible narrative in the 2019 MLB playoffs, Michael? This is like, maybe not for you as an avowed Bryce Harper hater, but for me, no, like, I it's going to be so exhausting. I might have confused some of your statements with some of the 300 other uh, Mets fans, including some recently minted Met, uh, Mets fans on staff. Right. Um, 
I am not looking forward to that narrative if it does happen. And I think the movable bar from NLDS to just winning a round uh, and whether or not the wild card counts as a round, maybe like the most exhausting narrative would be if they win and then lose to the Dodgers, because then we get we combine the the Harper Ewing theory uh, discourse with the does the wild card count <laughs> as a playoff berth discourse. So honestly, I think they'll win uh, the win against Milwaukee. And so what you want to make it. And I think that, you know, Zach and I talked about this. They're a real threat to the Dodgers. I think that they're the second scariest team in the National League, not just because of their rotation, uh, but because uh, of Soto and Rendon and some of the other guys have gotten that lineup, Trey Turner. And the fact that the bullpen is weak, but so is the Dodgers bullpen. And as, you know, as much as maybe the Braves bullpen is better than the, the Cardinals bullpen, it's not like last year's A's bullpen. So I I think that they've got a legitimate shot if they could get out of the wild card game to come out of the um to come out of the National League, but yeah, I mean that discourse is going to be brutal if they do. Daniel asks, "Who's your prediction for unsung playoff hero?" His vote goes to Gavin Lux. So I, the way that this question's worded makes me think like the guy who comes from off the radar, because, you know, if Gavin Lux hits a home run in the World Series, then he's going to get sung plenty. Sure. Um, the guy, you know, I, I think there are two um, two ways to look at this. There, one is like the Pat Borders World Series MVP, where just a guy who wasn't that good in the regular season turns into a monster in October um, and that is a well-trodden playoff narrative and one I happen to have quite a soft spot for. The other is like the prospect who really jumps up. And Gavin Lux, I think, is going to be a stud. Um, and we've seen this, you know, however many times Manny Machado with the Orioles. We've seen it with uh, um, dating back to K-Rod with the Angels in 2002 is probably the most obvious example. Uh, you know, Lux is is a pretty good bet for this if you want to frame it like that. Uh just because I expect the Dodgers to go pretty far. Uh, the guy, if I'm going to like pick two just based on nothing but gut, I'm going to pick two guys that Ben and I talked about. Uh, Mitch Garver, I think, could have a, a big impact. It's like somebody who really comes from uh, off the radar for, for the casual fans. I think, you know, how I don't know how many like casual Yankees fans know who Mitch Garver is, uh, and he could hit four home runs in that series. Uh, and the other guy I'm good. Actually, I'm not sure if we, if his name got, uh, got brought up at all. Um, I think if the Rays make it out of the, the wildcard game, I think Willie Adamas could be a, uh, a big impact player, um, in terms of his ability to impact the game, both offensively and defensively. He's got a lot of power for a shortstop, even in this day and age. Um, I think he could be a guy who really jumps off the field is like, I sort of, you know, when the pirates were in the, in the playoffs every year, sort of half jokingly predicted Jordy Mercer to win NLCS MVP, because that's just always how it sort of shakes out. David freeze is one of these guys who's, um, is sort of like comes from off the screen, uh, every year. But, uh, yeah, give me Mitch Gardner and Willie Adams. Can I nominate someone that we, you can nominate whoever you want. No, no. Can I nominate someone who cannot win this award? Because they're not actually unsung and they're well known that they're a very impact player for a team. Go for it. Ramon Laureano. Can we stop talking about how Ramon Laureano is an unsung hero of the A's? I think he's I I think he's still like far from a, a household name. Respect I, I mean, there neither is 
plenty of guys on the A's aren't household names. I I would argue that maybe not Matt Olson or Matt Chapman are household names, but I don't think Ramon Laureano among baseball types is particularly unsung. I feel like someone like Mark Hanna is maybe even more unsung than Ramon Laureano. That might be true. I think there, I mean, there's, we also need to moderate as I hear from, uh, from our editors all the time, like moderate when we're talking to baseball hipsters and when we're talking to like the general public. <laughs> yes. So like Ramon Laureano is obviously a big deal for baseball history or hipsters. I think, you know, I, I would probably throw him in the category with, uh, players who could have like a really with a good postseason could really get on like the national radar for the first time. I think Max Kepler's one of these guys. Um, I think Keston Hero's one of these guys, like using that as a launching pad to greater notoriety and stardom. I think that's a fair point. I just think the throws alone have made him enough of a baseball Twitter icon that I feel like he's no longer unsung. He's just a good uh, player. Baseball who does Twitter amazing is things. not real life. Yeah, well, neither are baseball podcasts, but here we are. All right, let's move on. This one, this next one comes from my burner, from Eric Garman. <laughs> Assuming he wins his second straight Cy Young Award, safe to assume, where does Jacob deGrom rank among pitchers in the 2000s? Oh, boy. So this, I actually meant to like go and make a list for this, and then I forgot because you were teaching me how to set up my microphone. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> I, this is not as well thought out an answer as I would have liked it to be. I think so. Just off the top of my head, I think he's still behind Scherzer and Kershaw. I think he's still behind Verlander. If you want to go like all the way back, like do we talk about, you know, was Pedro Pedro in the 2000s longer than DeGrom has, has been Pedro? You know, same with Randy Johnson and Roger Clemens. Um, I still think he's got a ways to go before he catches Roy Halladay, probably Felix Hernandez too. But after that, like we start, unless I'm missing somebody obvious, it feels like we get into, well, that's debatable territory pretty quickly. I think he's still chasing, I don't know. Is he still chasing Johan Santana? That's a, because and that's sort of where the, the line is. Cause Santana was like, I, and I talked about this, what I wrote about Verlander's hall of fame case last month, that Santana was like, the best pitcher in baseball or close to it until he was like 30 or 31. And then he just completely dropped off the map. And so DeGrom, I think is going to age better, but he also started kind of late. And so like he doesn't have to win more Cy Young awards, I think to, to catch up to somebody like Santana or, you know, somebody like Brandon Webb. But I think, uh, he just needs to have a gentle decline phase. And I think for want of a gentle, gentle decline phase, a couple of guys are going to end up uh, missing the, you know, missing the hall of fame, for instance. And yeah. so like, and it, it also depends on whether you value peak versus, uh, versus longevity. Cause you know, you look at somebody like Cole Hamels, who I don't think at his best was close to what DeGrom has been at his best, but he's been doing it for almost 15 years every year. And so it, you know, it, part of it, like, is this just like a, a career war, career like strikeouts uh, leaderboard or how much credit are you giving DeGrom for putting up uh, maybe the best pitching season in the 2010s last year? Yeah. Uh, I, so I think if he remains, like if he has a gentle decline like you're describing, 
I think he will pass all of these guys because I think peak, he's higher than a lot of these guys. Like a couple other guys that pop that come to mind. Oh, Zach Greinke should be on that list of guys he's behind. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple other guys that come to mind though is like someone like Roy Oswald or someone like Chris Carpenter, but they just did it way longer. You know, like I think obviously his, his last two seasons are better than any of any two seasons that either of those guys can pick and choose. And he's done it consecutively, and he's about to win back to back Cy Youngs. And you know, I think he's even been better for longer than someone like Lincecum or or even like Matt Kane is another guy who would probably edge DeGrom out in terms of like total accomplishments since the 2000s. That's, that's going to be true because what was DeGrom's rookie year? Was it 2014? 14? Yeah, rookie of the year. Wow, I guess. It hasn't been as long as you think like also he, because yeah, he missed it, like half the 2016 season as well. That's true. Yeah, it, I guess it, it feels like he's been because he came up and he was already kind of old for a rookie and he was just so polished. Like there was no like there's little anticipation and very little ramp up. Yeah. The way like the prospect hype over even somebody like uh, like Matt Harvey or you Darvish or uh, Jose Fernandez uh, was, you know, he just sort of appeared fully formed. And I guess like in my mind this kind of guy has been in the majors for a couple years already before he performs the way he did in 2014. So yeah, I think, you know, it's, I think he's going to end up with more longevity than Lincecum, but you know, he's still got a, I mean, that's the question is like the peak is obviously better than guys like Oswald or Hamels or Mark Burley, but the, um, he's still got a ways to go. And I, you know, I think longevity does matter, you know, and so it's not just taking the guy's best season. So we'll see, you know, I have no, we forgot to mention Chris Sale, um, David Price, certainly on longevity, probably not on peak, is is a guy that DeGrom's still chasing. So I don't know. We've probably mentioned something like 15, 20 names, uh, which feels kind of weird to to say about a guy who's in his 30s and has already won, will probably uh, win his second Cy Young this year. To go along um, with the Rookie of the Year. Yeah, to go along with the Rookie of the Year, pitching the World Series, made numerous all-star teams, so on and so forth. Did we say Kershaw? I said Kershaw. You said right? Kershaw. That was the first emails. name that you. Okay. <laughs> first name I, it that was you just said. so long ago, and I just sort of <laughs> tossed it immediately out. I was just like, if we didn't say, like, I could, you know, you know, you didn't. If if we had forgotten Granky, you know, I could yeah. live with that. But like, okay. I'm excited for the uh, the quick pitch phase of Jacob Degrom's career. Like, he needs to go talk to Mark Burley about that. I mean, Granky did it. Granky was, I mean, always had the the finesse, but like he does not have the the power anymore and he's just like he's turned into to like Florida man Louis Tion. <laughs> All right, let's uh let's speed through a couple of these last ones okay. and then get out of here. Um here's a fun one from Dan Dunford. What baseball player current or past would be best in uncut gems or an so, uncut gems type of film, he says. Having watched just the 2 minute trailer but having watched it 30 or 40 times, I think Kevin Garnett's going to be awesome. Oh, in uncut that's gems. the word on the street. And I like I say this as somebody who does not like Kevin Garnett. Like I don't like his shtick. I didn't like him as a player and this is entirely Sixers fan bias, but like I I am very optimistic for his performance. So like who is like the Kevin Garnett type. And it's got to be, and it can't just be like a, like a fun guy, you know, or somebody that like baseball or baseball writers think is funny or, or interesting or smart because it's not, you know, there's more to it than that. And the bar frankly is, is a little bit low. Like you want to say somebody like Puig, but I don't. First guy I thought of. Yeah. That just feels a little bit obvious. I think Hyunjin Ryu would be 
awesome in, a, in an uncut gems. Oh, I don't know if he could play thing. it straight though. He's really funny. Um, obviously, you look back at some of the like ramen commercials that he's done. Um, but I don't know. Like, there has to be sort of like a menacing factor to the person so that you choose. Yeah, he's just not threatening enough. Well, I think he, I, I think we mostly associate him with being like a super nice guy. Like we just spent seven minutes talking about Jacob Degrom. Hyunjin Ryu is the only other guy who could challenge Degrom for the Cy Young this year, and he came out and said he feels like Degrom should win, which is something that Kevin Garnett would never do. So if that's the bar you're using, I feel like Hyunjin Ryu does not quite clear that bar. So we need we need an edge. I think it, I mean this matches up in terms of star power. I think Verlander maybe. I don't know if he's got the. He's kind of pudgy. He's got a dad energy to him. I don't think he's pudgy at all. I think he's in great shape. <laughs> um, I think you, you skinny people like you and Kevin Garnett need to <laughs> need to slow your roll a little bit. Now we're just talking um, about the, the the ideal human body. We're debating the ideal human body. Kyle Seeger. I don't know if he's got the. You know, he's certainly not like a Hall of Famer like Kevin Garnett is, but yeah, I think he's got that kind of range that, you know, that that combination of of like the bug eyed wild man and like the the menacing when he wants to do it and the like the gregarious humor when he wants to do it. I think Kyle Seeger might not be a bad pick for this. I think so here, here is my interpretation of this. You're never going to find someone as like tall and necessarily intimidating as Kevin Garnett, but you do need someone with screen presence. physical presence. Yeah, Yeah. and and you need someone... Seager is not that. You need someone, I think, who has, like, enough style to, like, pop off screen. So, for that reason, I'm going with Marcus Stroman. Because he could show up looking fantastic. And I feel like he could put on a mean face if he needs to. Well, if you want somebody who's as keyed up all the time as Kevin Garnett was, Marcus Stroman is... He definitely fits that bill. Exactly. Um, Yeah. it's, It's definitely the opposite kind of of screen presence. Uh, I don't know. Verlander, Seeger, it would be a different movie. I mean, it would be inherently a different movie with a baseball player than with a basketball player. Listen, but, they don't uh, need to be tall. Tom Cruise is like 5'4", man. We could work some camera angles for Marcus Stroman. It's fine. Not Pete Alonso? Do you think Pete Alonso has a Let's get Pete in Uncut Gems. Sure. Him and, him and Francesa already have a rapport. Oh, we miss an obvious. I think Bryce Harper could do this. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Although, he has no, like, there's no authenticity there. Like, I feel like when, even from the trailer, I can see that Kevin Garnett is like, you're not always thinking about how he's acting necessarily. And Bryce Harper, I'm always thinking about how he's acting even when he's posting on Instagram. So. I mean, I always think about how Kevin Garnett was acting. You don't think that there's, like, you don't think Kevin Garnett's persona was entirely artificial and cultivated? That, well, touche. Okay, we don't My have more man time headbutting to- the the headbutting the 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 stanchion like but only right in front of the tv cameras yeah his image is exactly what he wants it to be uh let's uh let's move on connor farrell asks uh should the juice ball play a factor in comparing pitchers to hitters for rookie of the year and mvp so this is a great question uh because not because i have like a a clear-cut answer because i don't know exactly how it affects you know who it affects and how and in what ways i think the the verlander season this year where he gave up just bucket loads of home runs and no and almost no runs on on like walks and hits uh is a perfect example of how obviously it's having some effect i don't know what that effect is yet and i think you know if we're looking at 
season to see, but I think this is a good reminder to, to sort of take season to season totals uh, with a, a grain of salt, just because I'm not sure we really understand the totality of how the, how the juice ball is impacting player performance and who and what type. And so I think it's going to take a while for some of the statistical models to, to sort of catch up and to, you know, maybe, maybe less so that than like changing how we evaluate players. And so I think we're still a ways from understanding, um, how all this is going to work. But I think, you know, I didn't, you know, when I was writing my awards column, I didn't really take it into account just because I didn't really see, this is not like last year where I saw a really clear case for a pitcher to win, uh, win an MVP award. You know, I think the best rookie in, in both leagues was pretty clearly a power hitter. Um, and in both cases, a guy who probably benefited from the juice ball, was, but was going to hit a ton of home runs anyway. So I don't know. Like, I don't know how I would do that, but I think it's definitely something to, to keep an eye on. Uh, I think my answer would be yes, that it should factor in. However, if you use advanced metrics, if you use war, things are already park and league adjusted. So I think we probably don't realize how much these things are already being factored in. Right? Maybe. Well, I mean, it's... Like, so, if you're like willing the, to trust war, 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 war formulas, is thinking yeah. about this. And I think war is thinking about this, but, like, war formulas change over time. I'm just thinking about, like, what is the league... You know, Alex Bregman's case, for instance, like, you know, and this is the other thing. I don't know how much the juice ball is helping him versus how much it's helping Mike Trout. Um, but, you know, a guy who could play shortstop hitting four, hitting 40 home runs, slugging close to 600 isn't as remarkable as it was anymore. So I think some of that, like, shock from those uh, yeah. those baseline numbers that, like, any other year, like, if Cal Ripken had done that, he would have won the MVP. Um, I don't think that really applies anymore. And I think, you know, we're still sort of, you know, maybe I was wrong to say statistical models need to, to catch up, but I think our own heuristics are still evolving. Okay, we're running short on time. Last two questions, they're a tandem. One is from our lovely coworker, Donnie Kwok, and the other is from someone with the Twitter name Polar Bear, who is my lovely coworker in Mets fandom, I assume. The first one is, how many games would a team of Tommy Edmonds win? Uh, Tommy Edmonds, of on, course, being Donnie Kwok's cousin. Yeah. So the uh, if every position player was Tommy Edmonds, I think you'd actually do okay, assuming you could teach two of your Ed, Tommy Edmonds to catch, <laughs> uh, which I think that, I mean, this is going to uh, factor into part two. Um you know, I think he can play almost anywhere on the diamond. He obviously hit pretty well this year. As long as he doesn't have to pitch, I think, you know, you've got to, and assuming, and assuming he learns how to catch like competently, you probably go 500, right? That seems high. That seems high. Well, why are we assuming he doesn't have to pitch? There's no caveat. Well, added that's by the, because if the, because if he had to pitch, you'd there lose were like every 20 game. games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. That, yeah, that's fair. I think. If Unless he's exclude, got a knuckleball up his sleeve. I don't know. I've been wrong about Tommy Edmond before. Well, yeah. So If you can exclude pitchers and catchers, uh, I feel like they might win, you know, like 85 games. Okay. If everybody on and your team is hitting is, 300, then you're probably going to win a lot of games. That's that's fair. Yeah. The other thing is, uh, is he playing against like normal teams or the Edmond clones Playing play against, against other player the, clones. You know, the Bryce Harper clones, the, right. the Trout clones, the Otani clones. Well, that brings us to part two, which is yeah. uh, if you had to fill a whole team's roster with one player, like the LeBron argument in basketball, uh, who would it be? And I guess why? 
Yeah, so there was a, a time in space where, like, every time Noah Syndergaard or Madison Bumgarner would hit a home run, uh, people would say this, and it was, like, the most universally acknowledged, like, that Madison Bumgarner, a team of Madison Bumgarners would beat a team of of X number of other players, and it was, like, the most universally acknowledged baseball or accepted baseball thing that was so wrong because you don't <laughs> just have to be able to pitch and hit. You have to be able to catch and you have to be able to play shortstop. And so the only the only person that I can think of who's in the major leagues right now who has done all of those things and also hit at an elite level uh, is Buster Posey, who was a shortstop until like his sophomore or junior year of Florida State, where he was also briefly the closer. Like, I don't think he'd be a good major league pitcher, but I think I would trust, you know, he'd probably be in the top 10% of position players in terms of pitching. And he was also an excellent defensive catcher and... Uh, in his prime, could have held down any position uh, elsewhere on the field. And, you know, I don't know if he's passed. It's possible he's still the answer. Uh, but if he's, you know, he's getting up there in age, well, God, he's almost exactly to the day the same age I am. So the fact Rough. that he's getting old is is uh, a real bad look for me. But I guess writers age better than catchers. Um, <laughs> he's He's past his prime. And so I don't know if he's still the answer. I think if you assume that whoever this is gets, you know, you get two of those three clones have an offseason to learn how to catch, you don't necessarily have to pick a catcher, in which case Shohei Otani feels like an obvious answer. He's the I definite think, answer. Yeah, I think Andrelton Simmons is a dark horse for this. I think he would adapt to catching better than Otani. I think you're, you're up the middle defense, or I guess your defense everywhere, would be so good that it wouldn't matter if pitcher Andrelton Simmons, who was 97 off the mound in college, uh, let a, a lot of balls get into play. But I also think like picking Otani sort of doesn't feel like it's within the spirit of the question. No. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I think it's possible that the answer is still Buster Posey. Um, maybe the answer is somebody like, I was going to say like, you could try J.D. Davis, but like maybe you could teach him to catch, but you definitely couldn't teach him how to play shortstop. Uh, so maybe that's the... Um, maybe Ramon Laureano, you know? J.D. Davis is a tough one. I was actually getting ready to say Ramon Laureano, despite tamping down have, the hype a little bit. He can... I mean, he's hit over 100 multiple on multiple throws from the outfield. I think he could probably hit mid to upper 90s from the mound if he had an offseason to kind of get hit that, that arm motion correct so yeah yeah he, he's not I, a bad choice either yeah i i don't know like the and you know there are other guys like i don't know mookie betts is just like not just such a good athlete but like so so athletic in that andrelton simmons like body control way that i'm certain you could teach him to do almost anything but like absent essentially absent a, a, a record as a college pitcher i if we're choosing, uh, I hesitate to. If we're just choosing a toolsy outfielder who you can teach to do anything, the answer would be Mike Trout, though. I think pitcher Mike Trout gives up a lot of runs, and I think catcher Mike Trout lets up a lot of uh, pass balls. Well, I don't know. I feel like if, if he has an entire offseason, he's pretty athletic. He's squatty enough to get down there. Um, who's the last? Who's the last major league shortstop whose neck was wider than his head? <laughs> that's the big thing with Mike Trout, and honestly, this is a big thing with Otani, and that's why, like, I don't think that I think he just might be kind of like a little big and ungainly. And I know the straight line speed's great, but I have a hard time imagining him catching or playing shortstop. And the same for Trout. I could see Chapman and Arenado catching, 
So maybe they're not bad answers. Yeah, that's not a... And, you know, I just don't know how any of them... Oh, yeah, like all of these guys have pitched at some point in their in their lives. But, uh, you know, I don't know... You know, like I know what J.D. Davis was as a, a pitcher in college, you know, and I don't I don't have that kind of data on, on most players. So. Yeah. All right. Well, that's about all we have time for today, I think. And then some. Uh, yeah. So... All right. Well, it's good to to. Well, I guess I hear your voice every week, but it's good to to let the the listeners hear your voice, Bobby. <laughs> good to be here. I'm excited for the playoffs. That'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me. Uh, thanks to all of you who submitted questions for our mailbag. Sorry we couldn't get uh, get to all of them. Uh, thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Max Scherzer, Mitch Garver, and Buster Posey for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the first round of the playoffs, and we'll see you next time.